This is the Two Spies Podcast, studying the Bible in a different way. What does the verse say? What is the topic being addressed? How does this affect me today? Go deeper in Scripture. Now the conversation begins with your hosts, David and Mark. Welcome to Two Spies on the Roof, bringing you the Eclipse Live. (laughs) (laughs) That happens Monday. Well, actually, it would have already happened by the time you listened to this. Yeah. So, So, happy Eclipse past day. No, we're still in the future. We're still early. We haven't forgotten anything. Good. And uh, you can still buy tickets to my house to sit on the roof if you want to. Sweet. How much, how Even much? if the eclipse is over, you can still buy tickets. Oh, <laughs> what are they going for? It was $15 an adult, eight fifty a child. <laughs> if you want to go up on the roof, it's $7 and it's $13 for parking oh, nice. in the front yard. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I can't promise that your car will still be there after the event, but hey, <laughs> we'll see. We don't advise trying to get down from the roof during the event, though, because you'll be hard to see. Nah. Of course, I got lights on. Yeah, yeah we, they'll be okay. So what are we talking about? What's this podcast about? The Eclipse? Yeah, this is, this, this is in Blood Moon. Don't forget oh, Blood okay. Moons. Oh, Blood Moons, yeah, of course. <laughs> Stuff's happening. Welcome to Blood Moon Podcast. <laughs> Where the Eclipse Where the Eclipse never the... happened. Duh. Conspiracy theory. Is he... Anyway. All right, so tonight we are continuing Abraham. Or Abram. Sorry, Abram, we haven't yeah. really got to Abraham yet. I don't know who Abraham is. He, never, did, he hasn't existed yet. Never heard of that guy. Oh, oh Sorry. So where where are you starting? Well, we kind of left off. I kind of mentioned our last podcast about um, altars, how we would save it for this one, because I thought there was a little bit more information to fit than um, our other one. So just kind of briefly mention about altars. Noah was the first one to actually build the altar in Genesis 8.20. After the flood, after he got off the boat, he built the altar. Um, Abraham seems to be associated with altars. Uh, altar comes from the root word that means to slaughter. All temples had altars, but not all altars were in temples. And altars <laughs> were considered to have a special point in contact between human and divine, uh, where a human and divine met. And I remember, just a side note, I remember when I first got saved, um, I was sitting in the back. I was sitting in the back row when people were singing songs and. Um, I leaned to my friend because I was new to the whole Christian stuff, and I leaned to my friend. Haven't been in church before. Well, maybe a couple times when I was young, but you know, nothing significant. And I leaned to him, and his hand was raised while he was singing. I'm like, "What's what are you doing? What's everybody doing?" And he kind of stopped. He's like, "What are you talking about?" I said, "Everyone's hands raised. Are they wanting to ask a question?" <laughs> and he's like, "No, no, we're worshiping." Oh, okay, that's weird. And he was trying to explain it to me, and I remember the pastor. Uh, speaking and he said you know if if you want to get your life right or or give your life to Jesus yada yada come to the altar and so I leaned to my friend I said what's what's an altar it's the steps why doesn't he just say come to the steps <laughs> <laughs> or come to the front why altar so um, so I know there's a lot of altar calls especially was there a handrail at the top of the steps <laughs> I don't think so. Okay, because like uh, the last church I was at, there was a single step, which would be like a knee pad step, and then a handrail in front of it, which would be about the height of you could put your hands on your head in that as as you know area to pray. Oh, really? So the handrail step area was the altar. So you grew up 
Methodist, Methodist, right? yeah. So did they have, quote, altar calls like we do in, like, Pentecostal mm. churches, like, come up front? For- they think they do. <laughs> no, they don't really think they do. They don't do it, no. Okay. It's not a, a like a, a Baptist every single Sunday. The sermon ends up in a reason to get people to come down. Right. Um, come down here and admit what you did bad this week, or come down here if you're dealing with something for a long time, lay it on the altar. So that's that's something I've and uh, there's been places I've been where I've watched people like the pastors on staff. Yeah. After they have presented the idea, just sit down there basically and, and beg people, just come on down, come on down, <laughs> come on down here. Like they're not moving for 15 minutes now. Just leave them alone. Yeah, well, they're Methodist. You can't leave the altar empty. <laughs> you got to get them down I, there. I know. I know. So on the, on the flip side, though, there was no altar call um, that I ever remember in Methodist church growing up. And after I left at 13, got saved later and came back around 27 back into a Methodist church back in it no there was not an altar call still Hmm. and uh, I remember having a meeting one time with uh, uh, the staff and I was or not staff but the the, the cabinet whatever the council the mucky mucks (laughs) see I was one of those it was a small church so the particular title I had placed me on every single committee So when we had the normal uh, handle the business committee for the year uh, meeting, there was an announcement or a reading off of notes by the pastor who said, one salvation. What? (laughs) When did this happen? Because this pastor didn't call an altar call out and offer it, and nobody stood up and walked down there to do it. They talked to her privately, and the church was never told. Hmm. So on the flip side, I, I really think that's a bad thing. Right, sure. People, because when I saw in place of the altar call at the, in the, as far as Methodist methodology goes, is proclaiming the people are saved. You are saved in Christ. Yeah, yeah. if you're in, if you're sitting here today and you're in Christ, you are saved. But if you're not, then you're not. Right. So the people should be offered a clear choice, in my opinion. And maybe it shouldn't be done every single Sunday to beg them down there. But if they don't see it as a moment, because that's, that was another thing I learned from a Baptist preacher. Like, if you don't remember an event happening, it probably didn't. <laughs> so <laughs> you need to have a moment sometime where you say, yeah. okay, I, I did actually ask Jesus to be my Savior. I admitted what I am, and I asked him to do that. Yeah, I remember um, – I, I wish I could remember who told me this, but I remember some, when I was learning how to – you know, felt like called, I was felt called to speak or preach or whatever – and a person said, well, when you do altar calls, you know, about salvation, there's times where no one's going to respond. So then you got to figure out what else can I say to get people to respond? And then, you know, it's like, do you need to recommit your life? Do you need a healing? Or are you having a bad week? And you just need more of God? You know, there's thousands of things. And then, like, the altars would be filled with people, you know. He's like, so, you know, don't say just salvation because then it might be empty. So. It's like, I don't know, that's kind of an illusion to me, but I mean, I, I get the I point. I agree, that's an illusion yeah. to figure to, out how to get the more, people who are still sitting down to see other people going forward. It's yeah. crowd psychology is all it is to yeah. me. And I know Charles Finney, I believe, was accredited to inventing um, altar calls as far as what we know. And the reason why Charles Finney, um, I guess, is credited to the altar call is because when he was doing like big... Um, tent meetings like him and John West. I think it was a little bit before John Wesley. Um, but when he would have big crowds around, he would just travel and 
set up camp and you know start preaching yeah. you know and he came to the realization i don't know who's i don't know who's committing to jesus i don't know you know who wants to surrender to god and and how to get how that person that person needs to be discipled but there's no way of knowing yeah so he decided i need to ask you to come forward so i know who's you know wanting to surrender to life to god then the discipleship process can begin, you know, if there's a pastor or if there's another Christian there that can walk this believer, this new believer through the process. So yeah. it was the altar call was really invented to initially um, do what you're saying is, you know, we have one salvation. When did that happen? It was kind of that initial contact of, yeah. OK, this person um, needs to be discipled. They made a declaration, but Anyway, hmm. um, I remember um, also hmm. uh, Mark Batterson. Um, I, I can't remember what book he. I can't remember what book it was, but he talked about. It was kind of a strange concept to me at the time, but but I kind of agree with it now. Is he was? I can't remember the exact story, but basically he was out. That's what it was. He was out in a field, and it was the field where God called him to preach. God called him pastor. He was. Um, doing, he had a basketball scholarship. Um, he was a great sports athlete, and then God wanted him to go a completely different direction. And he said, "I made this film an altar." Yeah. And he talked about how altars aren't necessarily um, steps or how we perceive things. Altars are um, there to remind us um, where God spoke to us. Yeah. Where where God prays, you know, he talked about how he grabbed some dirt and and keeps some of that dirt from that field as a reminder. So yeah. that's like his altar. So I thought it was kind of a little interesting take on altars. That's cool. Um, Genesis twelve seven, Abram built an altar to God um, after God revealed to him about the land. Twelve eight, he built an altar and then called upon the name of the Lord. Thirteen four. Uh, he went back to his first altar after his visit from, to Egypt and called upon the Lord. Um, 13. I was looking at that right there because sure. just to make a distinction on uh, what looks like bad wordage. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Let me find it again in my notes here. You just well, interrupt me if I'm going I'm away sorry, from where's the first altar you just named in 13.4? 13.4. Yeah, to yeah. the place where he had made an altar at first. Mm-hmm. Then you, if you read before that, he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and I. Right. So this is the second altar he actually made. So I'm thinking oh, okay. it's uh, what I was looking at, like the, the, first, the first time or first period where he was making altars when he first came into the land. He makes his first one at uh, Moray. Is that right? Yeah, the Oak of Moray, that's Genesis twelve six. From there, and in verse 8, from there he moved to the hill country east of Bethel to pinch his, pitch his tent and made another altar there, verse 8. Right. So that's the second one, technically. Okay, but I gotcha. I just thought it was a neat, uh, neat wording, but at first I looked at it and thought, it's one of those places where you say, what what the world is this? This doesn't make sense, but... yeah. Uh, thirteen eighteen. After Lot and Abram separated, God showed Abram the land. They reminded him of his promise, and again, Abram built an altar. And uh, Genesis twenty two nine. 
Do you have anything before Isaac? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Okay. I was just kind of following like an overall uh, forest look as as opposed to a tree look at, at the altar concept with Abram. Because I was calling my little section on this right here, altars, testing, and choosing. So he makes the, the altars that you're talking about, but... The first altar is at Shechem, which we talked about last time. Shechem is between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Yeah. Ebal is the cursing mountain. Gerizim is the blessing mountain. So he makes an altar between blessing and cursing. He moves on from there and makes an altar between Bethel and Ai, between the house of God and the heap of ruin. Mm-hmm. So he's between the good and the bad, the cursing and the, the, the uh, blessing, the house of God, the heap of ruin. Every time he does it, he's almost between two choices all the time. What's he do next? After Abram had his lapse in faith, because he goes down to Egypt, <laughs> yeah. he's he's kind of in the middle all the time. Like God is guiding him, but he's also letting him make his own choices of what he's going to do. He's in the middle of these good and bad decisions or choices. He goes down to Egypt and fails pretty, pretty, you know, pretty nasty on his, you know, scrapes his knees of, of faith. Yeah. Travels to Egypt, goes through the testing. He returns to the last altar that he built the first time he was in the land. And I just noticed right there, it it seems to be a little different because the next one he builds, like you said, he goes to the Oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. I think we talked about Hebron last time a little bit too, and it basically means association or unity. Yeah. So he goes, he pitches his tent the first times, always between good and bad. Between this choosing or this testing, goes down to Egypt away from God, really, and, and fails the test. When he comes back, it's like he comes back like a renewed. And I remember having this in my own Christian walk too. Is there was a time where I was, I was already teaching Sunday school for a couple of years, and a major crisis event happened to me, which broke me down completely, destroyed all the dreams I had been building up, and restarted me. When I came back in that way, there was a, a new fresh. I always consider that like a, a Jordan to me, mm. as if I had first gotten say like a Red Sea. This this was a new Jordan, a new experience all over again for me. So, yeah. you just see him come back, and he goes where to Hebron. He goes, I mean, yeah, he goes back to the first one he built, and the first time he's in the land. But then he moves on from there. He goes to a place called Hebron, uh, which is association or unity. He really unifies with God, and this place is in his his line, his family line, and all their burial sites for a long time to come. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. Either way, I just thought it was a neat kind of overall look at it. Yep. <clears throat> so um, you're going Genesis 22? Yeah, Genesis 22, 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, uh, he said, here I am. Take your son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer there him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. I'm going to pause there and kind of talk about, was it Moriah or Moriah? Uh, Phonetically, it would be Moriah. Okay. Moriah. Okay. Just a few things I found with Moriah. Um, Southernly, it would be Mariah. <laughs> Mariah. <laughs> Go to Mariah, because God talks like that. Uh, <laughs> this area half. No. Uh, Moriah <laughs> actually has yet to be discovered. Um, there hasn't been any kind of findings other than the Bible about the area. Um, it appears in Genesis 22.1 and Second Chronicles 3.1. And Second Chronicles 3.1 is uh, where Solomon builds a temple. 
uh, the Samaritan Pentateuch says that uh, Moria means the place made visible. The Latin Vulgate says it means in the land of the vision. The Septuagint translates it as the highland, um, which possibly refers to chapter 12, verse 1, if you go back to that. I'm talking about the mountain, so uh, where Abraham was. 12-1? Yeah. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred to your, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Yeah, like go down so they're on this mountain. So the a Septuagint believes that that's that same mountain, this area. That's what the Septuagint believes. I went back into Upper Mesopotamia. Yeah. Okay. I- um. So then there's some uh, rabbi interpretations. Uh, rabbi Simeon ben Yohai better known as Rashbi, I believe, says Moria refers to the place that is fitting for sacrifice, likening to the mount uh, to the heavenly temple. Rabbi Im ben Palai, Pala, something like that, um, agreed that the translation of the word means to see, suggesting it's the place that was or will be shown to Abram. Rabbi Phineas proposed that it refers to the place where God would rule the world, which... Um, I don't really understand that, but uh, Rabbi Hei the Elder and Rabbi Yanai, I'm probably killing these names, no, suggest that. Yanai. <laughs> How are you going to say it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> suggest that it refers to the place where teaching or fear of the Lord came to the world, also the source of light. Rabbi Joshua ben Levi interpreted it as the place from where God shoots down the nations. And then other rabbi interpretations translate it as an instruction or a substitution. Any thoughts on Moriah? There's some uh, interesting things there if you take those thoughts from these rabbis. If that is, uh, let's take the first one from uh, Rashbi. Mm -hmm. If that refers to a place that is fitting for sacrifice, well, I mean, just looking at and keep on (laughs) following it out to the New Testament. Jesus was sacrificed, right? And at least in the range, the mountain range of Moria. But uh, he likens it to the Mount of the Heavenly Temple. Well, if there was a sacrifice given in the Heavenly Temple, what would it be, right? Yeah. Let's see. Uh, the place where God would rule the world. Well, I agree with you. I don't see why you would come up with that out of Scripture. But how did Jesus conquer the world? He was sacrificed. Yeah. Most well, likely, yeah. On, I didn't even think of that. That's a good, yeah. On that mountain, now these rabbis wouldn't would agree with what you and I are saying now either. But it right. was this, we're just applying their interpretation. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Chiyah uh, the elder and Rabbi Yanai suggest it refers to a place where teaching or the fear of the Lord came to the world. Also, the source of light. Well, that's pretty, why would you get that out of this? I don't know. Well, I, don't, I, I, I can't I say know. this. Some of the words for horns. Are basically the same word, which is this. I think this is the first place that horn, this particular word for horn shows up, Kedon. There's four four Hebrew and one Greek word for horn in the Bible, so five words altogether. This one right here is Kedon, and I think it's the first mention. But either way, a lot of the horn words are all related to rays or protruding, the idea of protruding out or sending out like a ray of light. Hmm. So maybe they're getting some of that from this because it was caught by its ketan in the, the bush. Hmm. God shoots down the nations. Uh, you could easily, I guess, throw Daniel's uh, dreams, Nebuchadnezzar dreams, 
in there and the, <laughs> yeah. the 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 rock that is not cut from by a hand takes down the nation's statue i did find like even in all these in the septuagint the vulgate the samaritan pentateuch um the rabbi interpretations and and dictionaries um the meaning of mori isn't really necessarily certain they don't really understand the word um because of some spellings but all all the definitions point to sight or vision yeah. or some kind of Do you remember we um, saw back here in twelve six Genesis twelve six where uh, Abraham passed through the land at to the place at Shechem to the oak of More and you had read off that More was basically probably teacher. Yeah. Okay. Uh Yare or different different forms of this this Verb is to see, and adding that M on the front, or that meme on the front, will turn it into a noun. So it's, it's sight or vision. More, the oak of more, is not phonetically really any different. Or I shouldn't mm. say phonetically, not grammatically any different in meaning. It's a noun version of vision or sight. Oh. So here's the thing, too. Depending on what translation you look at, uh, Genesis 22:14. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Look up and see if you can find the word, the Hebrew word for provide. Yeah, it's not there. Right. So they don't have a word for it. Right. What do they say then? They say God will see to it, which yeah. is idiomatically the same thing as provide. So it's still related to sight. Right. Hmm. Interesting. I did some, uh, this is a while back, and I've got it written down in my Bible here, but I did a little bit of number counting issues here just to see what came out. Um, okay, in 22, well, not in entire 22, because it, it goes on beyond the story of just Mount Moria. But in this main part of this story, three different times is the word Hineni, which is here I am, here I am, here I am. Three different times throughout it, so the question kind of popped in my head that day when I noticed that: Who's here? Who's present in this situation? So as I started looking and counting, just wondering, Elohim, which is the word for God, shows up five times. Yahweh, the name of God, shows up five times. Isaac, the name of the son, shows up five times. So there is a representation of. The Trinity is the name of the Son, the name of the Father, and the Word for God. Yes, I mean, you really can't find spirit in that, but just a, a representation of three, and they're all five times apiece. Five hmm. being grace. Grace is what uh, provides a sacrifice for us in our place. That's what this entire story is about. Right. So when you look uh, for Elohim, you'll find it the first four times. There's... There you see Elohim, you'll never see the name of God. Then you see the name of God once, Yahweh. And then you see Elohim one last time. And then you see the other four times of of uh, Yahweh. So like it, almost if you picture your left hand is, is Elohim and your right hand is Yahweh and you just wrap your thumbs together, it's almost four on each side and the middle one, it wrap, they kind of wrap around each other in a way. Uh Isaac is basically layered over the first main five times or four times of Elohim. Hmm. But still just all three of them being present in a way. Because, I don't know, when you look at this on 
a lot of different levels. This, this is a, a neat little story that has a lot of different picture types and stuff in it. Yeah. But one of those being, to me, that bleeds over from my Christian perspective, you know, past the page between Malachi and Matthew, what bleeds over is Jesus walking up this mountain carrying his own cross. The Father's present with him. Whether Simon of Cyrene carries the cross or not, yeah. the Father's going up the mountain with him also. Where's the where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Yeah, uh, there's a, there's a neat. You probably saw it too. There's a neat uh, grammatical issue on God will provide Himself a lamb or for Himself a. Uh, going back to kind of the Abraham and Isaac altar deal, um, you kind of mentioned that there's like a lot of overlays and symbolism here. Um, I put <clears throat> two things. Uh, God asks Abram to sacrifice at the initial call, which means. Um, to leave your father and go to a place of unknown. So there's like a sacrifice of leaving your father and going to some land I'll show you when you get there. Um, yeah. So there's a sacrifice there. Um, and then God asks Abraham again to sacrifice, but this time it was his son. And I put it parallels with God asking Jesus to sacrifice leaving heaven with his father yeah. and going yeah. to a place of, quote, unknown, to earth because he's never lived here before. He doesn't know what it feels like to be contained in a, in a body and, and to be stuck in one of these, yeah, be stuck in one place, <laughs> you know, and the temptation and all that. He doesn't know what that's like. Yeah. So he left, you know, his father to come into an unknown and Abram left his father to come to the unknown. And then, um, God asks of himself, uh, to sacrifice his son, to take possession of the land and the people. And again, uh, back where uh, God asked Abram to sacrifice his son for. So I put two kind of parallels there. I think I saw in your notes about the three days comment. Yeah. Uh, verse four it talked about on the third day and I didn't, and I put, I put the question mark of significance. I didn't know if you had anything. I know third, I know three days is, pretty huge in the if Bible. If you've been but, told by God to sacrifice your son, you, you know, I'm going to show you where to go and what to do, and you just take him there and kill him. Yeah. You're living with that for three days. He's as good as dead to you. Um, so it's kind of along the same lines when he receives him back, basically, yeah. that he doesn't have to do it after the, after God, the angel says, uh, hey, Abraham, look over here. <laughs> yeah. Now he, he's relieved. He's getting his son back. So it, I, it just kind of parallels to me, and I, and I call it role shifting more than I'd use a parallel because uh, similar to when God tells Moses, you're going to go be my prophet, I'm your God. He says, I can't speak. Aaron's coming to meet you. He, he's a good speaker. He will be your prophet, and you'll be God to him. So there's a role shifting downward there. There's a whole lot of role shifting in, in Abraham's life yeah, that he true. plays the part of God, and Isaac plays the part of the son very often. Yeah. So I did put, you know, three days you think about it. Um again, sometimes things get lost in, in just translation as far as you don't know the time frame, the time period, you don't know all what's happening and and when you read verses because you're just reading, you know, the next day happened and you're reading it, you know, right after an event happened. So there's time. So I think I put, you know, it's interesting, three days um when God told Abram, he was going to have to sacrifice his son to the actual event taking place. 
and you figure three days you have to think about this. Yeah. You have three yeah. days to ponder. You have three days to reject. Um, so you have three days. God's given him a, a grace period uh, in that testing that we find out, you know, um, you know, he, I, I can only imagine what he's thinking and going through. I mean, you got three yeah. days to carry this burden. So, yeah. <clears throat> so it's not just God tells him, he says, okay, let's go. Um, so Abram's obviously, you know, lo- the Bible says he loves his son. And so he's got to ponder sacrificing his son for God. Um, but it was, again, God testing. I don't know if we want to go into this now. No, let's, let's not. Okay, let's not. What are you okay, talking about? <laughs> um, the difference between testing and tempting. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know if you want to hit. I know there are several people who, over the years, I've talked to, and they kind of, uh, they they seem to can't separate the two between testing and tempting. Um, it's weird that if you go in the book of James, the word exactly. test and tempt are the exact same Greek word. Yeah. But within context and how things are yeah. um, explained, then you kind of figure out what it means because, you know, God can't be tempted by evil, but God does test us. Yeah. So here. Right, he doesn't use evil to tempt us. Right. He doesn't tempt us at all to do evil. Right. And so, you know, here is a is a tough issue. The well, reason if, why I put it here is because God is testing Abraham's heart and devotion to him. But, you know, it. You also kind of see, you know, being a devil's advocate for a second, you also see God is is killing your own son evil. Human sacrifice is bad. So God tempting Abram to even have that thought of sacrificing your own son. Does that make sense? Yeah. Just being kind of devil's advocate. So I kind of see where people can kind of get the mixture. Well, I'm going to hit something else on the head that people are – People, if they care about it, are going to be really mad. If they don't care about it, they're going to say, eh, whatever. Yeah. If you look through the translation comparisons of all these, there's only one that says God tempted Abraham. And theologically, it's wrong. Doctrinally, right. it's wrong. That's the King James. Really? That's the only one that says God is tempting him. That All the other ones are tried or tested. Right. Oh, here's one right here, which I never heard of, the W.E.B., Came to pass after these things, God tempted Abraham. Right. So you can see when but, people think. Yeah. You know. So my distinction on which one's what, number one, I don't think it's doctrinally correct that God would tempt us. No, right. I do think it's doctrinally correct that he would test us. It is not, uh, it is also doctrinally correct that the devil would try to tempt us. So I look at it, and we're going to get on it in a minute, I guess, anyway. We talk about uh, just follow Moria through the Scripture. When we get to the two different accounts of the census of Israel that David took, in one account it says that the devil did it. In the other account it says that God did it. Um, the same event happened. Two different perspectives yeah. are going on at the same time, possibly. So in in, in my own mind, though, with this is that an, an event comes to your life and you go into it and God tests you to bring you out higher. The devil tempts you through that to bring you out lower. Now, to me, it's that simple. That's a good, that's a good thought. Yeah. Same exact event, but they both have their own agendas in your life. Right. And, and I think, you know, not to go in the book of James. Um, no, let's not do that. But, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but you have, you have that, um, you know, the Bible says that we're enticed by our own flesh or our own evil desires. Yeah. 
um, you know, so we have we have you know the devil, and we're also being tempted by just because of the sin in the world, and God, you know, our job is to figure out how to conform to the image of God, get back to um, the original state of what the purpose of the creation, the purpose yeah. of we go back to Adam. And so God's testing us is to help us conform back to that original state. Um, tempting is doing the complete opposite. Like you said, there, there's two, it's, it's almost like on the same line, but they're, they're two directions. They're coming from two directions. The testing is from God and the tempting is from Satan. Satan's not yeah. going to test you to see if you're loyal or to see, you know, that's not, yeah. he's here to lure you away from God and God uses those temptations to test you to see where your heart really lies to see where your devotion lies like here with abram um do you think god is testing us to find out or to show us to show us yeah yeah not for him to find out no god already knows that was one thing i put is uh let's see Uh, verse 12, uh, when it says, now I know, the word know means to learn or to be revealed. So did God know Abraham? Yes. But Abraham, Abraham needed to learn about God, to know his voice, and I think to kind of know himself as far as this whole process of um, following God's will and following God's plan about um, being a blessing and the father of nations. Abraham has to go through this process, and part of that process is seeing if... Um, he knows God's voice. So. Hmm. Heavy. Anyway. Um, you want to go on through the scripture and follow this mountain a minute? Yeah. What was the next one we had said? Uh, First Chronicles 21. Well, we didn't say 21, but First Chronicles 21 is the setup. First Chronicles 22 is the mention of it. And not to go back. Do you want to go back and just grab a detail of? No, we'll get we'll get bogged down if we do that. <laughs> First Chronicles twenty one. Then I'll go there for just a second, just to give an overview of it. This is David. Uh, David's census brings pestilence. So First Chronicles twenty one one. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So that's the whole issue of this deal. Uh, and even if, like, if you read through uh, Kings and Chronicles, Joab's not like the most righteous guy in the world. <laughs> <laughs> but he even says the king's command was abhorrent. Um, God was displeased with this thing, verse 7, and he struck Israel, verse 8. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly. Please take away the iniquity. iniquity. Um. So then God sends a servant to him. He offers him three things. He chooses the actual, uh, basically the angel of the Lord's attack on the people. So it's an interesting story to me because you look at, uh, you can see this mini Bible in it, M-I-N-I, -I, this mini Bible going on. Uh, God sent the angel to to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and he relented from the calamity. I'm, I'm sorry, that's verse 15. You have this uh, picture as you go on reading right there. Let's see, verse 18, the angel of the Lord. Now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David, 
that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Uh-huh. So, uh, let's see, verse 20, Now Ornan was threshing wheat. He turned and saw the angel and his four sons were with him. They hid, himself, hid themselves. So you have uh, David going up here. He buys this altar. I think he buys, doesn't he buy the bull? He buys the oxen. Yeah, he sacrifices this on the threshing floor of Ornan, and the death angel, which was about to go over the land, stops. So there is a a terrible thing happening to all the people called death. <laughs> and liking us over to the picture type, there's a terrible thing happening over the world to all the people called sin, which is also called death. The death angel is coming for everyone, and there's a sacrifice this one guy does on this hill. It's a threshing floor, so it's on the top of a hill. It's on a peak. Hmm. Ornan, the Jebusite, literally he would be a Yebusi. This is a person from Yebus. Where is Yebus? Okay, Yebusi is a descendant of Yebus. Yebus, threshing place, an early name for Jerusalem. Okay, thank you. <laughs> the city of the Yebusites, also Yebusi. Yebusi. But this is an old name for uh, Jerusalem. So David buys a threshing floor, which is the peak of a mountain. You, when you thresh wheat, you of course, you do it on the peak because the wind's up there, takes away the, the lighter chaff, leaves the heavier grain heads they fall down you can collect them up without the chaff involved so this is going to be on a mountain it's on a mountain Uh, a threshing floor is also what uh john the baptist basically said jesus was coming to do to thresh us Mm. to separate the wheat from the chaff so what happens on this mountain he offers in a sacrifice an oxen for sacrifice when he offers this uh, it stops the plague that's coming over the people. Jesus, when he is offered on this mountain of th- the threshing floor where, where people, the good and the bad, are separated, the plague coming over the people of sin stops. Hmm. So, I mean, it's the same exact picture, basically. There's an, there's an issue that's death coming over this man's life, his son, and then there they go up this one mountain, and then there's a sacrifice done in in place, hmm. because this oxen's also sacrificed in place to appease the Lord's wrath for what David's done. Jesus goes up the the same mountain and and offers himself as a sacrifice to appease the Lord's wrath against sin, and becomes a, a substitutionary sacrifice. That really is a main you know main issue of sacrifice throughout the Bible is substitutionary sacrifice. Yeah. Not just sacrifice, but substitutionary sacrifice. Even with the old law, it was always a matter of putting an animal in your place because you sinned, not because you brought, I found this animal in my barn. He was sinning, so I brought him so we could kill him. Yeah. It's, it's, we were sinning over there in the house, so I had to go out to the barn and get this animal to bring to you and kill it because I sinned. Right. So it's always substitutionary sacrifice. Yeah. Until Revelation. That's a good point, right? That's a good point, though. <laughs> What was the next one? First uh, Chronicles that's 21 kind of caps that story off. Then David said, <clears throat> here shall be, and of course here is the threshing floor of uh, Ornan. Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. 
So wherever here is, wherever he bought this mountain, this is where he wants the, the uh, Temple of the Lord to be built. So he starts, and actually that's what First Chronicles 22 continues on right there is David commands <laughs> David commands the uh, the plans and stuff to be put together for the temple. He starts collecting things and stuff and then hands it over to Solomon, but he, he's telling Solomon where to do everything, what to do. Yeah, right. So Second Chronicles 3 1 mm-hmm. is right around the corner. Then Solomon began to build the, the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornana Jebusite. So he did it on Mount Moriah. That links it back to Abraham. He did it on the threshing floor of Ornan, which links it back to David offering an oxen. And what they're going to do here, they're going to build this temple for, for Yahweh, and they're going to offer sacrifices for the people. <laughs> and then eventually all that system is going to be replaced by someone who's going to offer himself as the lamb that God provides. Mm, that's cool. So you, you can almost see that happening on the entire same mountain. But I do think I've looked at it before and tried to look at some small details in the wording. <coughs> I do think possibly there is a mountain range called Moria or several peaks that they're not sure what's what. Or maybe they didn't know what was what. But if you look at David's wording there, he says, here is going to be a temple of the Lord or the house of the Lord. And here is going to be the altar. There's two different here's there he's referring to. So it looks like... Uh, Moria of sacrifice is the different place from Moria of temple, whichever mm. one's what. But that would make more sense because the temple was in the city. Jesus was taken like every sin sacrifice is outside yeah. the city and sacrificed on a mountain. But they still would be from peak to peak. You'd be looking across, you know, 300 right. feet away, yeah. 500 feet away at most or something. So same little spot there, same little area. But you really just see Old Testament just playing into Jesus' hands as, you know, his picture type again and again. That's cool. Uh, I got some stuff on Abram, Sarah, and Pharaoh. Unless you got anything to kind of transition better. No. Okay, uh, kind of moving to Genesis 12, 11 through 20 is the story of Abraham. Yeah, I got nothing on this, though. It's all you. Just Uh-oh. wake me up when you're done. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, um, Abram goes to Egypt because there's famine in the land, and Abram fears the Egyptians. And so he tells Sarah, hey, um, you should probably tell them that um, you're my sister because you're really beautiful. And if they think you're my wife, then they're going to kill me and they're going to take you. So chicken wah so just say you're my sister, and then everything will be golden. So <clears throat> I want to ask. I want to ask. Just say you're me. Just say you're my hot sister. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm gonna put David on the spot then. So <laughs> since you don't have anything to say, here we go. Why do you think Abram feared the Egyptians? Because the Egyptians aren't this powerhouse group that Moses had to deal with yet. Yeah. So w- why do you think Abram even feared these this group in the first place? Ah, well, it does say that he thinks that the place is godless or they, they don't fear God. Yeah. I, I could be mixing that up with... Uh, I don't have an answer. That's what I'm asking. <laughs> I could be mixing this up with the... Uh, it's on the tip of my tongue. What's the other king's name that he lies to about his wife? 
Phil, uh, Philibert. <laughs> Hold on, I'll find it. I don't know what you're talking about. When he lies to the other king about his about Sarah being his oh, sister. Oh, oh, sorry. I've, I heard something else. Sorry. Uh, Abimelech. Yeah. He lies to Abimelech also. Let me look it up because I don't want to. When I hear a preacher or a speaker do that and they mix up two or three stories and they just keep on going. We did that during Jonah, I believe. <laughs> you know, the flood in Jonah. <laughs> we did that on purpose, though. <laughs> oh, I know. I'm just teasing. Okay, Genesis 20. There is no fear of God in this place at all. I did it because I thought there is no fear of God in this place. So that's him talking to Abimelech, not to Pharaoh. But I do kind of think it's along the same lines. But it, I really, I guess I would look at it just real simple and say, he thinks they're going to kill him and take his wife because she's good looking and he's just one man. Yeah. Well, that's good. Um, she's good looking. I should. Oh, I, I forgot what son Egypt was. Who was his dad? Uh, Canaan. Was Ham. It Ham. 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 If you're okay. looking for Noah's. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. He's Not, and he's called Misraim back there. <clears throat> well, depending on your translation, he's either Egypt or Misraim, but he's a son of Ham. Okay, I can't remember. Anyway, um, but Abraham's judgment about Egypt seemed correct. They took his sister. They were going to take his wife. They they took Sarah because she was beautiful. Yeah. They were going to take her regardless. So he kind of knew about them somehow. Yeah. Um. So they took her. And I don't personally believe anybody slept with her. I don't. I don't mm. really see that in scripture. I just believe she found favor with all these guys, these princes, and the pharaoh because of her looks. And she wasn't. She didn't become a um, a, a harlot. She didn't become a hoe. Yeah, she didn't become a hoe. <laughs> She's not a hoe. Um, <laughs> So she just found favor because of her good looks. So she could pretty much say, hey, you know, blink a few. Kind of like Samson and Delilah. She can kind of flatter her eyes and say, hey, will you do, you know. Um, so I don't think there was any sleeping yeah. around. I, I don't think God would allow that regardless. Um, and because of her beauty, Pharaoh made good deals with Abram. And then God afflicted Abram. And here's what I found interesting is God afflicted Pharaoh not because of Abram but because of Sarah. Um, who actually did the lying? Abram told Sarah to lie, but verse 18, Pharaoh says Abram lied. Well, I mean, if your friends told you to jump off a bridge, would you? Depends on how high it was and how much money they give me. <laughs> There's a lot of factors going on. I don't know. <laughs> but I know the smart answer is no. But hey, who knows? But, you know, so who who actually did the lying? You know, one says, or Abram told Sarah to lie, but um, Pharaoh says it was Abraham who lied. So I don't think it really matters, but it was just a little interesting observation for uh, me. Uh, Responsibility-wise, who's it really come to? Abram. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the sin of the world lies in first on Adam, not on Eve. It's his yeah. responsibility. He's the one that really allow it to happen and then you have your you know Torah law here if, if a woman a wife or daughter makes a, a word to someone makes a promise to someone 
and the the man of the house, the father or husband, hears of it and does nothing, he's responsible for it now. If he hears of it and annuls it, it's annulled. It doesn't it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. So, according to the Hebrew law that God puts in place, and this to other other doctrines we know, it's Abraham's deal. Whether Sarah said the words with her own mouth or not, he asked her to. But it's still his responsibility for the, the whole situation taking place. Did we did we talk about lying in our last podcast? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's also Abraham's deal that they're even in Egypt. It's his lack of faith that yeah. they're in Egypt for. Yeah, that's true. Uh, my next my next series is uh, Abram and Lot. So you got anything? Uh, I was going to stop and head towards what happens to Abram's faith after his unity with God. Because, you know, I stopped a little, come, my notes while ago kind of ended on Hebron unity. Okay. I'm not sure how Lot's going to fit in where there. I mean, I don't have to say anything in Lot. I, can I guess this, yeah, we, we can go to Lot, but I want to say this first because it does kind of, we see this happen with Abram. As Lot and him split, right? So just going back to altars for a second, you got Abraham building altars between Mount Gerizim blessing, Mount Abel cursing, Bethel, house of God, and I, heap of ruin. He's building these altars between these choice places, and he fails in his choice, going down to Egypt, fails in his faith, goes through some testing there. When he returns, he goes back to the altars to start over again. And then he moves down to Hebron, which is unity or association. We see him take this real, uh, a brand new kind of look at his faith with God. So he was once afraid of a single king on earth in defense even of his wife and his own life. But now he purposely plans to take on four kings and their united armies for the sake of rescuing a nephew with only 13, 318 men. Yeah. He's got a whole different kind of faith now. Yeah, well, that's never, yeah. He is at the point. Uh, he is at this point united to Mamre and his two brothers. So he does have some some help here, but he's still only taking three hundred eighteen men. That looks like a total number to me between all three of them. So after his victory over them and the rescuing of his relatives, he rejects a king of Sodom. He rejects a king of this world's blessing, and shares communion with the king of mystery, which is Melchizedek. Uh, Melchizedek receives his and Abram receives his blessing. So I just wanted to go in that direction for a minute. I won't jump all the way into Melchizedek because we need to hit Lot a little bit. I don't have much on Lot, but I mean, Melchizedek's an interesting figure if you have some yeah. stuff. And- I got a little bit on him, but uh, I just wanted to go that one direction because we see this play out in Lot's whole deal. Once he, once he really gets too close to uh, the world and screws his life up and his, and his wife and his children. Yeah. Once he screws all that up, I mean, on the way there, Abram's got to keep stepping back in. But Abram's got this awesome faith now, like, I'll take them all on. Yeah. They're evil and doing something wrong. I'll just go kill them. It's, to, <laughs> uh, not, not to veer off and we'll go back to where you're saying, but it, it, to me it's interesting that um, Abram took Lot with him. So Lot is seeing um, firsthand, you know, um, Abram acting out in faith. Um, so he's, you know, seeing Abram's faith acted out as far as being obedient to God and going to this land and then him settling, you know, building altars. And I'm sure they witnessed these altars. I'm sure they participated. In, and yeah. so Lot is and, you know, Lot experienced this wealth also. And so Abram and Lot have all this wealth and all these livestock. So, you know, and then they they split off. 
But I think it's interesting that Lot saw all these things that God did and still kind of <clears throat> veered off towards a path while Abraham went the complete opposite direction. I'm, I hadn't put it together, but I mean, I just recently, when I was putting these notes, trying to trying to organize them, I just recently saw this issue of him building between for a while and failing in his faith. That's all the time Lot was with him. When he comes back uh, and builds at Hebron, right after that's when Lot separates. So Lot has been seeing Abraham kind of, um, I think this is is right and real and good. And he he's, then he sees him fail, though, and sees him make a choice to go down to uh, Egypt. So yeah. maybe he hasn't really seen Abraham like stick to it kind of faith. That's true. He has... Well, no, he hasn't witnessed uh, Moria yet because that's, that's, this is around chapter 13, Moria being 22. So yeah. he's been seeing a man hear from God. He's been seeing a man try to make a decision, walk to God more. But I don't know how much faith he's actually seen displayed. Yeah, like well, that's a good point. Faith in the tough moment kind of faith. Sure. What else do you have on Lot? Oh. Um. So take it away, Mark. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Just I, I, things just trying to jump out at me. You know, Lot saw a similar place to Egypt and took it. It says, yeah. Um, so he he he's thinking about the place that they weren't supposed to go to, that um, took Sarah, and um, though they made good deals with Abraham, he just saw this place, this worldly place, and. Um, Egypt apparently were not worshiping Yahweh, the one God. So Lot kind of, I think got, Lot probably got a little bit more influenced in Egypt than um, Abram yeah. probably. And so when when they get all this stuff, you know, they they split Abram sells in Canaan. And again, God confirms this promise. He's like continually reminding Abraham this promise, this promise. This is the land I want to give you. This keep going. Here's the land I want to give you. And um, Mamre, the campsite. 18, 14, uh, 13, 18. So Abraham okay. moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. Yeah. And there he built the altar of the Lord. That's, that's the last altar I've been referring to anyway. Yeah. So that Mamre is... Uh, during the Roman Empire, it was one of the three sanctuaries rebuilt by Herod the Great. It was actually not in the town of Hebron, but it was very close or very near. Um, Abram settles after God promises to give Abram the land of Canaan. Um, and it's also here that God appears and announces that Sarah will have a son. And it's also the burial site for Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, and Sarah. So, so this place, and Leah, hmm? and, Leah and, and Rebecca, yeah, yeah. So this place has a lot of significance. Um, yeah. I think to, um, again, it, to me, it's kind of like um, the altar thing, where um, an altar is, while it's, it's a monument, but it's, it's like an organic monument. It's not like a museum where, oh, that's pretty, but. It's a, it's like a living museum. It's really hard to explain. It's it's uh, it means something. It meant something then, but it means something now. It's a it's yeah. a constant reminder of of what God did and who God is and His faithfulness and all that. So so even through history, like Herod the Great, we built one of the sanctuaries um, there. Thanks for listening to the Two Spies podcast with David and Mark. Don't forget to check out twospies.net for daily devotionals 
writings on various topics, and separate Bible studies. Help us out by subscribing to the podcast, write a review on iTunes, and spread the word.